But you insist on the T? Yes. It's Friday, February 2nd, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Tweede Kamer Frequent Flyer, and with me today is Gordon Derrick, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Mausassin. A third regular member of the team, Troubadour, is currently sleeping in the other room, enjoying the peaceful silence because his very loud boss, Molly Quell, contributing editor at Dutch News, is currently terrorizing the Italian Alps on her skis. Yeah, so our commiserations to the Italian mountains there. Yeah. And um, yeah, so, Paul, you've been in and out of the uh, Trader Karma a lot this week. Yeah. Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah. Well, uh, I had a I had a week off because I finished my exams on Friday, mm-hmm. so I uh, I was kind of bored. So I thought, well, let's go to Parliament. So I. Uh, what, what else would you do? What else? Would what you do so i went there and uh well whoever been there knows that you have to go through these airport security uh gates and so, and after that you have to put all your jackets and your coats and all your uh bags you have to put them in a locker which i did mm-hmm. when i wanted to leave the building um i uh took away all my stuff or at least that's what i thought only to find out later on in the streets that i lo- lost my wallet so i left it in the parliament building because apparently my wallet is the same color as the bottom of the locker in the Tweede Kamer. Yeah, so either the designer of your wallet or the designer of the lockers needs to have a um, have a rethink there. I think the yeah. design of the Tweede Kamer because <laughs> exactly. it's a very, yeah. very ugly building. So I had to go back and I had to go through all the security again and again and then I had to explain that I was coming for my wallet and then someone else used the locker which I used so they had to go and mm. find the master key and it was. And then uh, Hank Cole came along and asked me to uh, <laughs> what I did with my pensions and yeah. he wanted my money which I couldn't give because my wallet was in the locker. So it was uh, so yeah. it's a lucky break, really. Yeah, yeah. And at what point did you discover that your wallet was missing? Uh, I was uh, standing in line for McDonald's. Uh, <laughs> I, I have a feeling you wanted to. Uh, you wanted I, I me, did uh, want to, to say this. Made that clear. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and did you go back for your burger afterwards? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Excellent. Good. And you are a mouse assassin. Uh, well, there's the, uh, the, I discovered a mouse in my kitchen uh, this uh, uh, yesterday. Um, what was his name? He's not there anymore. Uh, I didn't know. I don't know. I, I didn't interrogate him. <laughs> you uh, just you just killed him. Uh, yeah. Then I thought I'd ask. Uh, killed him first and questions later <laughs> and you killed a second mouse uh, there, there was one before yeah it's, uh, it, 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 it tends to happen when mice get into my house. The, well, the battery of your mouse just uh, just went and down. And the battery so of my mouse. So that's the second yes, mouse. That's true. My, 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 uh, my computer mouse seems to have uh, died within the last half hour. Well. <laughs> so uh, yeah, m- m- it's not been a good week for for, uh, for, uh, for mice in general. In, so if you're listening my... and you are a mouse, just get out of the way of yeah, Gordon because you will die. <laughs> This week, we'll update you on the latest Groningen Earthquake episode, tell you everything about the donor drama in the Eerste Kamer, and who might or might not be behind this week's series of DDoS attacks. In our discussion, we'll talk about the ongoing debate on colonial heritage. A number of banks and public institutions, such as the tax office, were the victim of cyber attacks this week. Both ABN AMRO and ING banks had problems with their apps and internet and mobile banking services on Wednesday. Both banks refused to comment on the size and nature of the attacks, but it's widely suggested the attacks were so-called DDoS attacks. The head of the Dutch counter-terrorism unit, Dick Schoof, said on Monday the attacks were serious, but could be eliminated relatively quickly. It's yet unclear where the attacks came from, but many Russia. 
Last week, it was reported that the Dutch intelligence agency IFAD had spied on a Russian group believed to be involved with the hack of the Democratic Party during the US presidential elections last year. Let's explain exactly what a DDoS attack is uh, for anyone who doesn't know. DDoS stands for Distributed Denial of Service. And uh, what basically happens is that an attacker sends uh, thousands of information requests with a computer network he controls to the attacked website. And uh, that causes the service of the website to be overloaded and unable to handle normal traffic. And you can compare it with uh, sending hundreds of people to an offline normal bank uh, who are all shouting but not actually wanting anything. Yeah, so it's a bit, they just get bombarded with requests from uh, lots of computers at the same time, yeah. and uh, their servers can't handle it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. it's like, like you say, it's basically like being in, uh, uh, um, like having a lot of people just standing in a bank building, uh, all shouting at the same time. Yeah, and not wanting anything, and yeah. Uh, yeah, and disrupting normal services. Yeah, and the whole thing uh, just kind of collapses. Yeah, and we sort of think, uh, or people have pointed the finger at Russia uh, because this this has happened before. Right? This happened in uh, one of the Baltic states, I think, uh, Lithuania, where um, uh, their entire kind of government network was uh, sort of um, ground to halt because there was a uh, DDoS attack uh, coming from Russia. Yeah, it's very uh, it's a it's a coincidence apparently, but mm. whenever a government of some sort uh, blames Russia for something or no, uncover something that is not in Russian interest, and all of a sudden, all their uh, government uh, facilities gets bombarded by deals attacks. Yeah, or no, people are just bad losers. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> that might be true. Yeah, but, but, but this is the story that was um, you know, we talked about last week, uh, where um, the the Dutch security services uh, were, uh, had a hand in um, apparently exposing who was behind the, the hack of the Democratic Party during the U.S. presidential election. And the week after that was uh, was revealed and publicised because we kind of knew the Dutch were involved in it, but we didn't actually know uh, uh, the extent was, but apparently they'd hacked into a university building in Moscow. Yeah, they, they hacked, hacked a security camera. They had security camera, yeah, they, so they uh, could actually see who was going in and out of a room. Yeah, I yeah, still wonder why the, this, this information has leaked out. I don't <laughs> think it's in the interest of the IFID uh, uh, that, that any, every, anyone knows what they're doing and what they're capable of. No, it's true, but the, 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 there was a lot of detail and a lot of politicians uh, sort of giving, I don't know, kind of, obviously the, 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 they said officially we, we, we can't comment on operational matters, but they all said, oh, but aren't we proud of our security services? So <laughs> yeah. kind of tacitly saying they didn't do it, but, you know, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. Gas production in Groningen should be cut by nearly half to cut the risks of earthquakes in the region to a safe level. That was the main recommendation of a report by the watchdog body Staatstuzicht op de Meinen on Thursday, which said that the annual amount of natural gas extracted should be capped at 12 billion cubic metres. The body also called for the gas production to be stopped altogether in the area of Lopasum, where an earthquake measuring 3.4 on the Richter scale struck in the first week of January. Chief Inspector Theodor Kokelkorn didn't rule out further reductions in future or even switching off the gas supply altogether in the long term. The NAM, the joint venture of Shell and ExxonMobil, which is in charge of gas production, said it had taken note of the findings, while Economic Affairs Minister Eric Wiebes has promised to make a final decision by the beginning of June. Yeah, and that earthquake of uh, 3.4 on the Richter scale was uh, was a record uh, uh, record magnitude in uh, in the Netherlands. Well, not quite; it was the second biggest. Oh, it? really? Yeah, oh. There, there, there's been a 3.6 in the same area, but it's, uh, yeah, it was unusually unusually strong. Yeah, so uh, they're definitely going to cut the gas production by half. The um, uh, Ministry of Energy still has to make the final decision, uh, but he is under a lot of pressure to implement the inspectorate's recommendations in full. Uh, at the moment, gas production is about 21.6 uh, billion cubic meters, so it's nearly half the current level. Um, and, but lots of parties in The Hague, including uh, uh, co- parties in the coalition, have said that the gas supply needs to be cut back 
much faster than it is at the moment. And Vibus himself has uh, been to Kroni and acknowledged that uh, people in the area are rightly impatient with the way the whole process has dragged on for several years now. But there's one big problem, which is that most of the country's households are still connected to the gas network and depend on gas for their heating. Yeah, so, not only yeah. households, but also uh, factories. Indeed, and, uh, yeah, and, business, and, and, and hospitals, and hospitals, uh, and yeah. schools. So it, it's not as simple as just uh, I mean, uh, uh, turning the tap down. Um, and the Khasuni, which represents gas suppliers, says the country needs a minimum of 14 billion cubic metres just to get through a mild winter and nearly twice as much if it freezes. So the, 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 there's a gap of at least 2 billion uh, cubic metres to be uh, made up before uh, they can uh, meet this target that the, um, the watchdog body has set. And uh, these earthquakes has uh, caused a lot of damage to houses and uh, um, is there any news about the possible compensation? Yeah, that was the other um, uh, big part of the announcement uh, on Thursday. So, uh, Vibis has now decided that uh, the process of assessing compensation, which up to now has been carried out by the NAM, um, is going to be in future um, done by an independent committee. So that, and, and also that uh, in the past, householders have had to prove or provide evidence that their, the damage to their homes was caused by earthquakes. Whereas from now on, it will be kind of assumed that if it, if the damage looks, you know, plausibly like it is earthquake related, then then they they will be compensated. Yeah. Now the norm has to prove that it yeah it it, it, it isn't from uh, from earthquakes. Exactly. So if you have a house in an earthquake area and it's uh, there's, there's big cracks in the wall, then uh, yeah, it's down to the norm to show that it wasn't that that the earthquakes didn't cause it. Um, and the liability is enormous. It's it's going to almost certainly going to run into the billions of euros. Um, and uh, Vibus announced that the the, the the state ultimately will act as guarantor for, to ensure that the compensation is paid out. Um, although Shell have also said that they've they will cover it from their profits. Yeah. Um, so and uh, a court ruled uh, two weeks ago as well that householders who've, whose homes have lost value should get compensation straight away and not just when they sell up. Um, and so all claims submitted before last March will now have to be settled by July uh, because the process has all been stalled since about April last year um, because of, uh, because of this issue of uh, who who is uh, how the liability should be decided and who's responsible for uh, assessing it. Um, and uh, another 8,000 claims have come in since then and nothing's been done with them and they will have to be taken on by the new committee. So it'll have its work guys out from the start. Yeah, and, uh, and Vibus also said that uh, psychological damage will also be included into in yeah. this damage comp- compensation uh, scheme indeed yeah so, so that's going to uh, push up the bill even more yeah but uh, definitely a change of tones yeah, since, I think definitely uh, the, 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 last year. Yeah, I, I think the government is definitely much more has realised uh, d- d- just uh, you know what, what a sensitive issue this is uh, for people in Colonia. That became very clear during the election campaign, and then they, they, they've decided they're going to roll their sleeves up and um, and act on it. Dutch senators have asked for more time to consider a proposed law that would introduce an opt-out system for organ donation. If passed, the law would mean people would be automatically considered to be organ donors unless they explicitly objected, the reverse of the current system under which organs can only be donated if the donor or their families give their consent. The law was proposed by D66 MP Peer Dijkstra and has already been passed by the lower house. Campaigners who back the switch say it would help address the shortage of transplant organs such as hearts, lungs and kidneys. At the moment, around a 1,000 people a year are waiting for donor organs. However, senators said they wanted to see more detail about how the law would regulate the rights of families and the role of doctors before they come back and look at the bill again next week. Yeah, because it was a, it was a marathon debate. 
Yeah, uh, it started at uh, at ten uh, thirty and it lasted until uh, in 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 the middle of the night. Right, is this a debate you went to see when you lost your wallet? No, no, no. That was the <laughs> eerste car. I was in the tweede car. Oh, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it's very unusual for the eerste car to have uh, this, yeah. Uh, the, yeah, such a long uh, such a long debate. Mm. Uh, but um, uh, what the uh, senators were really worried about was the scenario where. Um, someone uh, 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 died and didn't give consent and uh, relatives would say no my uh, my relative uh, didn't want to be a donor and mm. then uh, in that scenario the doctors would have to uh, accept that wish or not and, yeah. and that was where the uh, where the uh, uh, uncertainty was about um, but how would the uh, opt-out system uh, work in practice? So the idea is that everyone who, uh, who turns 18 uh, will get a letter from the government asking if they consent to be a donor. Um, and then they'll learn, if they don't reply to that, uh, they'll get a second letter um, uh, after a while. If they don't respond to two letters, it will then be assumed that uh, their organs can, uh, can be used. Uh, although... Um, their family will have the right to object. Uh, the only thing is they will then have to show somehow that uh, the person uh, was against the idea of being an organ donor, but for some reason didn't get around to um, uh, sending back the form. Yeah, and the question now is what will count as proof and what will not count exactly, as proof? Exactly, yeah, that's, that's all that has to be decided, and that's how to decide in the Senate. But in the moment, kind of in seven in ten cases where somebody hasn't consented to be a donor, um, the, the family refused. So the hope is that uh, there, there'll be more, um, uh, it'll all be easier to, uh, to take donor organs uh, from people who haven't expressed a clear view one way or the other. And uh, the thing kind of issue here is that lots of people have strong views uh, either way. So, you, you know, you have people, I think about one in four people say that, say that they're, they're very much willing to be donors. Um, and then you have a, another group who say, that, you know, I, I don't want my uh, organs to be used. I feel it's a violation of my identity. But you have a lot of people kind of in, in the middle who just find it just a really awkward thing to talk about and don't get around to, you know, and put it off. And it's, it's not nice to sort of think about, you know, what might happen if you die prematurely. And so never really get around to discussing it or making a decision one way or the, the other. And then if people aren't getting, you know, if people are then not getting organs that they need uh, for kidney transplants or whatever because people just haven't felt comfortable talking about the issue then you know that that's a problem i think you have to address so it's whether or not you decide for an opt-in or an opt-out system i think that there definitely has to be um uh, some way of making sure that everyone's you know people actually give a clear opinion on the other and then the question is how how far as a state can you push people to talk about these very sensitive issues yeah that's uh yeah it sparked a a, a debate again mm. um yeah, my opinion is uh, my organs are mine to give and not yeah. yours to take. So I I don't like the government to assume mm. that I want to give my organs even though uh, uh, I never said them I wanted that wanted to do that. I'm personally in favor of don of, of making a donation. I don't care about that, but I I can imagine that this is a very personal choice for people. And uh, yeah, uh, the question is how much do you want the government to to be a part of this choice and this decision, and I think there are there is there are much better ways to have people think about becoming a, a donor or not. Before, for example, whenever you go to a doctor, um, remind that patient that he he still has to make a decision, or whenever you log in on DigiD or something. Um, uh, I just don't want the government to uh, to assume that I want to give my organs or not. Yeah, it's difficult. You've got kind of two conflicting things having you know, the, the the first season. If, if um, yeah, your, your organs are obviously no use to you after you die so why wouldn't you want um, uh, someone else to benefit but on the other hand as you say you know, is, is it the government's place to decide for people whether or not um, yeah, uh, their organs are used in donations 
The Anthony van Leeuwenhoek Hospital in Amsterdam and the Academic Medical Center in Groningen are joining an ongoing court case against four Dutch-based tobacco firms, the hospital said in a statement on Thursday. The chair of the AVL hospital, René Medema, said that their researchers and doctors are doing their utmost best to help and treat people for the consequences of smoking, while the tobacco industry is doing their best to make people as addicted as possible to cigarettes. The case was started by lung cancer patient Annemarie van Veen and lawyer Benedict Fiek, who are accusing the tobacco industry of doing deliberate damage to public health. They argue the firms cannot hide behind the freedom of choice of people because they are deliberately influencing smokers' behaviour. Yeah, so it's another one of those issues where it comes down to kind of personal choice versus um, yeah, whether people can or can't be coerced into, in, 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 into, yeah, in, in, into making decisions about what they do with their bodies. Yeah, yeah. and um, uh, the problem is, uh, I, I heard Benedict Fick talk about this, the problem is that 90% of people who, who start smoking do that when they are under the age of 16. So yeah. uh, can you assume that teenagers have... A freedom of will or you know have a freedom of choice um uh, it's 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 uh yeah I, i'm wondering what the judge will say about this because it's a really interesting um yeah dilemma yeah exactly and you know on, because on one hand you can argue that it's down to the individual to decide to stop smoking but the tobacco companies have for years uh, we, we suppressed research about exactly how damaging um, tobacco was, and also how difficult it was to uh, to, uh, to, to to wean people off it. And I can remember the days when you had things like called low tar cigarettes, which were supposedly sort of healthier, so people would switch <laughs> to those. But they weren't any healthier at all. They were still they were still giving you cancer. Yeah, there is also a, a public interest in this, in mm. s- most certainly in terms of of of, of health costs, because exactly. seventy uh, percent of people who start smoking will die of of illnesses uh, as a consequence of smoking. So. Yeah, there is a lot of pressure on the health costs as well. So, yeah, there might be a public interest in here as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, no, yeah. People who die of these illnesses, having first gone through an awful lot of very yeah, expensive and intrusive treatment. Yeah, so, so uh, don't smoke, kids. Yeah, it's a bad idea. Yeah. In sport, the winter transfer window closed on Wednesday without much fanfare. A total of 133 footballers either joined or left Dutch clubs during January, which is short of last year's record of 151, but most of the news was about transfers that didn't happen. League leaders PSV Eindhoven had hoped to sign a new left-back, but their main target, Portuguese international Lumor Egbenienu, opted for sporting Lisbon instead. Ajax's German winger Armin Yunus looked to be on his way to Italian club Napoli, but decided at the last minute to stay in Amsterdam, citing personal reasons. And two Dutch players who had been hoping to leave England are also staying put. Daily Blind had been in talks to join AS Roma on loan, but Manchester United were only interested in a sale, while Davy Klaassen's move from Everton to Napoli fell through at the last minute when the clubs couldn't agree terms. So no Brexit for them? No, no, no they're, they're, they're still stuck in the Brexit land. And uh, there was also a rumour about Formula 1 uh, coming to Drenthe. Yes, the big question this week is, is um, uh, Drenthe ready for the glitz and glamour of Formula 1? Or more to the point, is Formula 1 ready for the glitz and glamour of Assen? <laughs> <laughs> because uh, we learned a few months ago that uh, Zandvoort Racetrack wants to put the Dutch Grand Prix back on. Uh, it was last held there in 1985, but now it seems they have a domestic rival because the TT circuit at Assen has also uh, had an inspection by Formula One officials and they say the track is more or less up to scratch. 
Well, they need to upgrade the curbstones and the guardrails and uh, clear some of the hay bales off the pit uh, off the <laughs> track as well. Um, but uh, and the tumbleweed, <laughs> and, yeah. indeed. Um, one of the main issues with Zandvoort is accessibility because it's right uh, on on the coast and it's not. Um, uh, whereas um, uh, the Assen circuit is right next to the A twenty eight motorway, so it's easier to get to. Yeah, there is only one road that leads to Zandvoort. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. Um, with Formula One keen to exploit the surging popularity of Max Verstappen, the um, yeah, yeah, the, 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 uh, the motor racing circus could stu- soon be on its way to Drenthe. Yeah, and there was also a rumor that uh, the Formula One might be interested in a street race in Rotterdam. Yes, uh, uh, Rotterdam or Amsterdam, they said. Well, yeah, I think Rotterdam is more plausible. I don't see how you could have a street race in Amsterdam. No, I can, can't imagine <laughs> that. No, no, that would never happen, no. No. Hermine, the escape cow we talked about last week, has been saved. The cow managed to escape en route to the butcher seven weeks ago and fled to the herd of another farmer who was unable to catch her, after which it fled to a nearby forest. Efforts to catch her there using food laced with knockout drops also failed. A specially licensed hunter was also unsuccessful in shooting the cow, after which the animal's right party, Partij voor de Dieren, started a crowdfunding campaign. The party announced yesterday it has raised enough money to ensure the cow will spend it the rest of her days at a cow retirement home in Friesland. Yeah, it, it co- apparently it cost f- uh, forty-seven thousand euros to 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 send a cow to a retirement home. Well, I suppose you don't know how many years of a pension it needs to build up, and I understand that Hank Cole played a <laughs> uh, key role in that uh, organizing that uh, arrangement. Yeah. I also understand that they were going around uh, Mario team was going around the Trader Karma uh, uh, picking up lost wallets to, to, to contribute to the fund. <laughs> oh, that's what happened to my wallet. Ah. Yeah. Uh, but yes, so, so good news for Hermine, and uh, yeah, but it's um, uh, uh, I'm kind of curious that Patay van der only got involved after someone had tried to shoot the cow first, which <laughs> yeah. seemed a bit uh, a bit late in the day. <laughs> and after it was sent to a butcher, yeah, it's uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they should have paid more attention. Yeah, they, they, I think, they, they, yeah. kind of smacks of glory hunting a bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a little bit. D- yeah. Jump, jumping on the cow bandwagon. <laughs> We'll be discussing the recent debate about naming things uh, after fallen colonial heroes after these words from our sponsors. Do you drive or ride a bike? Are you in the train or on the train? If you're producing text in English but aren't sure of just the right wording, M Squared can help you. M Squared is a digital publications company that can help you with all of your writing, editing and translation needs. They have a combined 20 years experience crafting the perfect document from editing books to writing website copy. If you need help with your website text, brochure, thesis, press release and more, contact them at info at msqrd.com. If you are interested in reaching an international audience with your product or service, you can email to podcast at dutchnews.nl for our competitive advertising rates. Months ago, the Mauritshuis Museum in The Hague removed the bust from the foyer of the man who gave the museum its name, Johan Maurits, who made a fortune in the 17th century Brazil sugar trade. But after the NRC wrote about the move a few weeks ago, it sparked a heated debate about how the Netherlands should view its colonial past. On one side, we have people who think statues of and naming things after historical figures such as Johan Maurits is a glorification of slavery and colonialism. And on the other side, people who are calling the renaming and removal of statues an iconoclasm or a builderstorm in yes. Dutch. Yeah, because that, that was what Mark Ritter's original point was. He warned against uh, iconoclastic behavior yeah. or approach to history. 
Yeah, and uh, the bust in the Mauritshuis Museum wasn't actually removed, but it was moved to a different room in the museum, and it was a room about Maurits' personal history. Yeah, so what they did, I think the, the, the museum decided to uh, include a display about Jan Maurits and his life and his, and, his, and his history as part of the museum, because when it was refurbished originally about four years ago, there was uh, some criticism that there wasn't enough attention to the, the guy who actually uh, built the house and uh, gave his name to the museum. So the, they, they did this and they set up this room which has got an original statue or bust of Johann Maurits and a couple of portraits and a sort of explanation of who he was and uh, how he came by his fortune and all the rest of it. Um, and at that point, they then put out a press release saying that uh, as part of that process, they'd removed this bust from the foyer because it wasn't an original bust, it was a replica. And this of, was in September? And this was back in September they actually did it and I think they announced it maybe a month later and no one really there was no real response to this at the time uh, whatsoever and um, and then all of a sudden in January someone mentioned it in a column for NSA and um, around about the same time that uh, a debate had started up about a primary school in Amsterdam that wants to change its name and take away the name of uh, Jan Peterson Kuhn. And uh, um, who was this guy? So he was uh, a governor general in the East Indies, uh, now Indonesia. And he was controversial because he quashed an uprising on the island of Banda uh, in which um, something like uh, 14,000 out of 15,000 inhabitants died. Um, yeah, were killed. And he, yeah. were, were killed. It, it was a massacre, basically. And even at the time, Kuhn was criticised by his um, by his superiors. Yes, his nickname the was the, company. his yeah. nickname was the Butcher of Banda. Yeah, I think he maybe acquired that nickname later on oh, but, uh, okay. in, in doing history. But by the time he was, was criticised for it, he got reprimanded. Uh, so even by the standards of the day, it was felt that he, he was unnecessarily violent and bloodthirsty in, in putting down this uprising. But still, uh, a lot of streets and apparently schools and also a tunnel in Amsterdam is named after Jan Peterson Kuhn. Yeah. Um, and there's also a famous incident of uh, Jan Peterson Kuhn who originated from Horn, which is a city in uh, North Holland. Mm. And uh, there is a large statue of him on the central square there. And a couple of years ago, a truck um, knocked over the statue and fell down from its yeah. plinth. So there was a debate in Horn and about should we put back this statue, mm. should we re-erect it? Because after all, he committed genocide. So what they did, they uh, reached a compromise. Uh, they put the statue back, but they added a large plaque, a large information sign with context and about his history and about his deeds and also about the very bad stuff he did. Yeah, yeah so they gave more context to yeah. the history. Yeah. The discussion, I understand, is sort of about, on one hand, do we want to have um, statues of these people or do we want to name, carry on naming streets and schools and public buildings after them? Or is there a risk that if you, if you just simply remove all reference to them, then, then you're, you're kind of airbrushing your history? Yeah. When actually you should be having a, a discussion about the very kind of mixed and uh, nuanced nature of what's still known as the golden age that brought great wealth to the country, but also has got a dark side. Uh, and there was also an incident in uh, Rotterdam. There was the Witte de Witte Art Center, and it's named yeah. after another of one of these colonial figures, and mm -hmm. uh, they wanted to rename their, their art center. And uh, I think Witte de Witte was involved in conquering uh, the Indonesian island of Java. Yeah. So they wanted to rename that center. And uh, yeah, that, that's also in line of this discussion about renaming uh, buildings and streets from figures in from uh, from the colonial past. But the question is, where does this stop or where do you start because yeah. uh, how many historical figures are 100% clear and clean and perfect yeah. uh, there aren't many of them I think no, exactly. And also, if you, if you just simply take away all, all reference to it, then does that actually promote a more open and healthier historical discussion? Or do you simply say, we're not going to talk about this person any longer? Yeah. Which you don't necessarily want to have that either. You, you want to acknowledge the, their achievements. I mean, Johann Maritz is kind of a good example. 
here because uh, I think as the director of the museum um, uh, pointed out when she went on television, he did a lot of good things and and, and even in in, um, uh, Brazil where he was uh, governor of the Dutch colony that was taken over from the Portuguese, he improved things like education and uh, brought culture to the area but he also made a lot of money from the sugar plantations and the way he he got the labour for the sugar plantations was he went and invaded a Portuguese slave colony and then shipped people across the Atlantic uh, to work as slaves in the plantations. On the one hand you can say there were good things he did but there were also things that that we now see as uh, exploitative and unacceptable and ultimately I suppose it comes down as well to the issue that uh, Matt Ritter and lots of other people raised which is should you view the history of the past by the standards of today? Yeah, that's that's the question now. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I I don't think there will be a bridge opened in the near future, and we will call it the Jan Pieterson Koen Bridge yeah. anymore. We stopped doing that because we acknowledge that he uh, he committed genocide, and we don't see him anymore as this kind of uh, uh, hero from the past. Yeah. Uh, even though the Jan Pieterson Koen Tunnel in Amsterdam was opened a few decades ago, and yeah. it was named after him, so we evolved from seeing these kind of people as as a hero, and now we we don't recognize him anymore as a hero. Yeah, exactly. And I think when you look at history and interpretive history, you, you can't avoid using the uh, judgment of the present day, tree because you know, in the 17th century, people thought that witchcraft was a real threat, and women were, were drowned in the sea because they were found guilty of being witches. And if you simply say, we'll apply the standards of the day, then you have to conclude that the, those women were given a fair trial and justly drowned. So you, get, you reach all kinds of absurd conclusions. So that's not really tenable, I don't think. On the other hand, you've got to be mindful of how people lived and thought at the time. History is only really relevant and meaningful if, if you relate it to, to the present time and use it to understand how we got to where we are today and actually how we got to the society where we can have this kind of debate. A lot of these statues, of course, were put up in the 19th century when there was kind of a revival, a, a, a revival of the golden age and there was a kind of a need to have these heroic figures because the country was going through a phase which kind of diminished in importance. People reached out to look for the look to the great figures of the past for kind of inspiration. And, and, and nowadays we now you know, understand that their contribution was was more kind of mixed. And as you say, we're probably not going to probably carry on naming buildings or bridges after somebody like a young Peter Zonkun. But I think there's a difference between having a street named after someone because that's you can't. It's really hard to put any kind of context to that, and having a statue where there is actually room to put up a plaque that uh, explains exactly what their role was in history. So is that a, a, a good solution to this? Um adding more information uh, to statues? I think so, yeah. You can acknowledge the history and you can still... You can still acknowledge that, that in, the, in the past people thought these persons, these people were heroes and, yeah. and, and saw them as as inspirational figures. And with the plaque we can uh, explain to the people that we don't think that anymore and uh, add more context to whatever he did. Yeah, or you can still acknowledge uh, their achievements and they won, you know, something yeah, like Vita de Vit won some very important sea battles that, uh, that, that increased kind of Dutch sea power, but also he was also involved in, say, torching the city of Jakarta. You can put the side by side and it, it comes back to, I think, who decides who writes history and in, in, in the past we sort of focused very much on the colonizer, the, the people who brought the wealth from the colonies back to the Netherlands and didn't look so much about the experience of the colonized. Those people didn't really have a voice whereas nowadays they do and their descendants will want to have uh, their view represented as well, and there should be room for both. I think. Yeah, so don't see things in black and white. No, but, exactly. Uh, Gradually, as you go on studying history, you uncover more information. So it's just adding more information. And even when you're looking at applying the standards of the time, you could easily say Jan Peterson Kuhn 
um, yeah, massacred 14,000 people and he thought that was fine. Yeah. I don't think he thought that was a necessary price to pay. You can put that in the history book. And that then highlights you know, the other side of the coin, that um, actually he was reprimanded at the time by his superiors and that you know, a lot of people on the island uh, suffer terribly and it caused a huge amount of, um, huge amount of damage. So you're not really taking away from history, you're doing the opposite. You're supplementing what you, what you knew then with uh, what, we've, what we've uncovered since. So, uh, Gordon, what I'm wondering, if, if, is there uh, a similar debate in the UK going on now? I think it's been, uh, there has kind of a debate ongoing for several decades and it follows more or less the same lines, I think, about the, the, there's a kind of strong nationalist sentiment that says that we shouldn't taint uh, the um, uh, glorious figures of the past uh, with, with the standards of today. I tend to think it's, it's, it's maybe a bit further on and there's, there's more awareness uh, that the colonial legacy was was not all a good thing, a benign thing. I th- there has been a view in the past that uh, colonialism was kind of a great civilizing project. I think that um, yeah, that that's been challenged a lot uh, in, in, in in recent decades because we've seen that you know is a very exploitative thing. And of course the the the. the, the it's worth saying that Britain was much more deeply involved in the slave trade than the Dutch ever were. We, yeah, we, yeah, we, yeah. we were involved. We had a lot more <laughs> colonies. We shipped a lot more slaves, and uh, we went. We did it for a lot longer. Although we were about the first people to abolish the slave trade. Um, and then kind of policed it for about 30 years afterwards while other countries were continuing. But that was mainly because we kind of exhausted it. Really. We'd, <laughs> we'd had our kind of fill of slaves and thought, right, we've established the colonies now, and now we're going to kind of claim the moral, moral high ground. So also in the UK, uh, uh, it's generally acknowledged that it wasn't all golden. There was also some yeah, dirt I, going on I in think the there so-called has been, golden age. Yeah, I think there's been kind of a more mixed uh, d- d- debate going on. I mean, my own personal heritage is that my family made their fortune in the Jamaican uh, sugar plantations, oh, wow. which, were, which were absolutely run on the backs of slave labor and <laughs> probably yeah. yeah and there was and, and there were all kind of arguments at the time that slavery was abolished this is terrible news for the planters and how were they going to run their plantations more efficiently and yeah. uh, they didn't by and large it was dependent fully on owning and trading slaves those those are the choices that people made at the time but uh, in, in general yeah, we, we sort of abolished slavery because uh, we had our fill of it we got very rich on the back of it and then uh, decided we didn't need it any longer yeah <laughs> so so no one else could have it either <laughs> yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily use the uk as a glowing example of how to have a debate about colonialism is there is there a country that's a glowing example? Not really, no. no I, don't, I, don't I don't think, think so. Maybe possibly uh, Belgium, because oh. they were so horrific. And, uh, yeah, Belgium is an, an, an entirely in different story. Yeah, yeah that's really... A, a, there's no real room for denial there. No, I think uh, in, in Belgium they were they were in a state of denial, but yeah. uh, a few years ago uh, a renowned historian wrote a book about the, about the Congo, and it was at that point where everyone started to realize and acknowledge that whatever happened in, in Congo and uh, all the terrible things that happened there yeah. were really terrible and I think Belgium is much more accepting its its past and, than it has been uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think that history is, is so kind of bloody and so scarred that you just can't justify it anymore. Only Germany doesn't have any problems with colonies but they have uh, also other sorts of problems. They have other issues, yes. That's all we have for you this week. This podcast is a production of Dutch News which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the live notes you can now send comments compliments and abuse by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl if you want to help us out you can subscribe to our feed give the podcast a rating and share it with your friends my thanks to gordon derrick and troubadour i'm paul peters and we'll be back next week with or without molly we're not entirely sure yet